Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Centre. Following on last week's show, in which we discussed the evidence being gathered for the upcoming court challenges to the COVID lockdowns across Canada, we thought we'd look at the other type of cases the Justice Centre is involved with, defending citizens who have been issued tickets for violating public health orders. I thought I would get John to guide us through the process from a Justice Center perspective so that us common folks can get an understanding of what happens when you, say, for instance, get handed a piece of paper from a police person that says you are being penalized by the government to the tune of, say, $2,000 or whatever for skating outside during a poorly justified public health emergency. Did I editorialize there? I can't tell. Okay, John, walk us through the process. Okay, first thing to know about tickets is that uh, police do arrest people for refusing to provide identification. Now, I was discussing this with one of my Justice Center colleagues the other day, and I, I asked the question, Is it uh, are you legally required to provide your name to a police officer when the police officer asks for your name? And it w- his response was interesting. He said, the correct legal response is that no, you are not obligated to provide a police officer with your name. However, uh, it's standard practice amongst Calgary police, and I assume police forces all across Canada, that if you refuse to provide your name, what they do is they arrest you for obstructing justice. And that's where people get handcuffed and and so on. And, you know, ultimately you might be vindicated in court, but I've never been arrested, but I assume that it's a very unpleasant experience. And so if you don't want to get the cuffs on and get hauled down to the police station and so on and so forth uh, and be charged with obstructing justice, then you're better off to provide your name to the police officer, uh, check with a criminal defense counsel, and maybe I'll try, I'll try and report back on this on the next podcast, but it seems to me if it is illegal uh, for police to arrest you for refusing to provide your name, what you could do instead is provide your name, receive the ticket, and then file a formal police complaint against that officer for breaking the law by <laughs> demanding uh, to see your name. And you, you can ask the officer, and if I don't provide my name, I'm going to get arrested. Is that correct? And if the officer says yes, uh, because police officers don't like formal complaints to be filed against them because it's uh, it's a pain in the neck. Same goes for uh, doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, anybody. You, you don't like uh, formal complaints fi- uh, filed against you. And in, depending on which professional body, sometimes these uh, complaints even if they're ultimately dismissed, they stay on file for a long time. So that's the first piece of advice. If you don't want to get arrested, uh, practically speaking, uh, it's best just to provide your name and get the ticket. Now, what happens next is that uh, when a person gets a ticket, they ha- they can uh, plead guilty and pay. They can mail in a check. Uh, I recommend that unless you've done something that's really bad and you deserve to pay. But if you are simply... Uh, exercising your charter freedoms peacefully, then uh, you plead not guilty. And then uh, some weeks later, you will get a letter in the mail saying your trial date has been set for 
uh, August the 24th, 2021, or, you know, uh, October, July, February of 2022, who knows how backlogged they are, uh, you'll get a date back with a trial date. Also, keep a copy of the ticket for yourself uh, when you mail it in to plead not guilty or else mail in the copy of the ticket pleading not guilty. Probably better off to, to keep a copy for yourself. You'll need that. So next, and I'll just assume for right now that you're self-represented. Uh, I'll talk about it in those terms. So you have mailed in your ticket, you've kept a photocopy yourself, you've pleaded not guilty, you get a letter back from the Crown Prosecutor's Office informing you of a trial date and time and location. The time, by the way, you better book a whole day off because if they say you're on trial at at 10 a.m., they've got 10 other people that are on trial at 10 a.m. And you could be sitting there for a long time before your turn is up. So bring some uh, reading material with you and bear in mind the... uh, the, the courtroom might bar uh, cell phones, so you won't have your device. So if you want to get caught up on some reading, uh, yeah, the court proceedings are interesting anyways, but uh, take some reading material with you because it might be an hour or two or longer before uh, you're actually up for trial. Anyway, you've set the trial date, or sorry, the Crown Prosecutor's Office has set the trial date. The next step is obtaining disclosure. And what this means, disclosure is the Crown's case against you, and it can include things like photographs, uh, it could include uh, videotape, audio tape, it includes police officer's notes, because typically when the police officers uh, issue a ticket, you get a copy, but on on their own copy that they keep, they write down the specifics, you know, I... I approached, let's say it's a speeding ticket, the officer might take notes and say it, it was sunny weather, the roads were clear, um, you know, I was using my radar gun and uh, clocked uh, this person at, you know, 130 and uh, I pulled them over, uh, they were polite and friendly, uh, issued the ticket or, you know, if you're rude to the officer, they'll put that in the notes, whatever, they, they take notes and they're allowed to refer to those notes uh, in court at trial. And um, so the disclosure is basically the Crown's case against you. So it consists of police officers' notes, and it can include uh, videotape, uh, audio tape, uh, photographs, uh, whatever the Crown uh, wants to put forward. Okay, so how does this disclosure come to you? You've asked for it. What do they do? They say, okay, here's a thumb drive with everything on it, or here's a box of stuff. You know, they have to give you this prior to the trial or? Absolutely. And their their failure to do so uh, can lead to the dismissal of the charges against okay. you. Now, what ha- what can happen, unfortunately, is that the, the accused person can walk into court uh, ready for trial and say, I've not received disclosure. Here's copies of, you know, two letters I've mailed off to the Crown asking for disclosure. I haven't received anything. The Crown might then apply to reschedule the trial date and the presiding judge might say yes, and then it gets bumped over and you've lost a half day of work uh, just to get down to the courthouse and go in there and say you haven't received disclosure. Uh, or the judge could dismiss the charges and say to the Crown, you know what, you've you've had a year and a half to give this guy disclosure, you haven't done it, the charge is dismissed. And uh, obviously, if you're the accused person, you prefer that that, that latter approach. So the disclosure should be mailed to you or um, provided by a USB stick. Uh, if you get a hard time over not having a lawyer, I've heard this happen to some people who say, well, you know, you got to get your lawyer to 
to uh, to request disclosure. We only send it out to lawyers. Well, no, uh, that's wrong. You have the right to be unrepresented if you so choose, and you have the right to the disclosure, full stop, black and white. So it's like, well, I'm uh, I'm unrepresented, and I'm entitled to this disclosure. And uh, you know, persist. And if the if the clerk is uh, uncooperative, ask to speak with his or her supervisor, and so on. So you get the disclosure. Next thing is the trial. What happens at trial is the crown puts in its case first, and typically that will they'll uh, the police officer will take the stand, will be sworn in. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? Yes. Okay. What happened, blah, 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 blah. And the police officer tells the story of what happened. And uh, the Crown can also adduce uh, uh, photos or video recordings, audio recordings, you know, depending on what the charge is. And that gets displayed. The accused person, you have a right to cross-examine the police officer, which means to question the police officer. And then... You have uh, then the crown's case is closed, so it's it's done. Uh, there, there's no more forthcoming. Now the accused can choose to take the stand uh, or not. Now one thing people uh, sometimes get in trouble over is they, they say, "Well, I'll take the stand and I'll t- tell my side of the story, and then I'll just step down and sit down." Doesn't work that way. Yes, you can go up there and tell your side of the story. But the moment that you get up on the stand and promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to so help you, God, and once you've said your piece, the Crown Prosecutor, the lawyer in court, has the right to cross-examine you, and you cannot refuse to answer. Or if you do, uh, you might be found in contempt of court, or if you're not found in contempt of court, you lose all credibility because the judge is not going to respect you if you refuse to answer questions any more than he would... Uh, except the testimony of the police officer or anybody else. So it's a double-edged sword. If you go up and take the stand to testify, you got to stay up there and, and answer questions. If you don't go up, you're not obligated to. You have a right to remain uh, silent. And uh, if you don't go up, then the judge simply makes a case based on, makes a decision based on the Crown's case. Uh, has the Crown proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty of the constituent elements of the offense. So the offense could be driving a car uh, at a speed higher than the posted limit, or the offense could be you know, violating a public health order. But the Crown has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the, the facts of what happened, who, what, where, when, why, uh, and put those facts before the court, and then the court decides. Okay, has has the crown proven beyond a reasonable doubt that these offenses were that this offense was committed? And uh, typically, in uh, certainly in traffic court, I don't know if it'll be the same thing for via for accusations of violating public health orders. But in traffic court, you get a decision immediately. Ninety nine percent of the time, it would be a very unusual, complex case where the judge says, "I'm going to reserve judgment and I'll render." my decision, you know, some weeks or months down the road that only happens in very unusual circumstances. So you get a decision right on the spot. Now, how it works with the Justice Center is that, uh, you know, we're trying to take on as many cases as possible. We just hired our eighth lawyer, started working for us January 1st. Uh, We are now looking to hire another two lawyers, one or two lawyers. And, um, as well as paralegals. So spread the word. Uh, somebody that 
uh, is, is a lawyer or paralegal and, and has a passion for defending the free society uh, and getting us out of this uh, hellhole that we've been in for the last 10 months with all of the uh, harmful, destructive lockdown measures inflicting massive suffering on millions of Canadians, um, you know, you're welcome to uh, submit your resume with a covenant covering letter to, to the Justice Centre. So uh, if the Justice Centre is taking on your case, and again, I, I don't make an absolute promise to everybody that we can't necessarily take on every case, but we're trying to take on as many as possible. So if the Justice Centre is, is representing you, it will be the Justice Centre uh, and you can contact us after pleading not guilty and getting a, a trial date because that is it saves us a bit of work at the front end. Otherwise, we've got you know the extra work of mailing in a copy of the ticket and you know writing a letter saying this person's represented by the Justice Center uh, and we're pleading not guilty and then a second letter for disclosure, etc. So people should just plead guilty on their own and get the letter back on a trial date. Once you have a photocopy of your ticket, plus you have the letter from the Crown Prosecutor's Office with your trial date, you submit those documents to the Justice Centre and you ask for legal representation. If we're able to take on your case, what we will do is our staff, lawyer or paralegal, will write to the Crown Prosecutor's Office and will request disclosure. We'll also advise the Crown Prosecutor's Office that we are raising a charter defense. And this, the Crown might respond by sending it over to a separate trial date, a different trial date, where they're going to have the courtroom empty except for that one case. Because we're going to explain the charter defense, which is that the health order itself is not valid under the charter. So therefore, even if the person did technically violate the health order by, you know, having Christmas dinner with their grandmother or by, uh, you know, giving giving a hug to a friend that does not live in the same household, whatever it is, the defense is essentially, uh, look, we're not disputing that our client, John Smith, you know, did on the 5th of January uh, attend a peaceful rally, in, you know, in a particular city. We're not disputing that, but we're saying the health order itself is illegal under the charter. And then that becomes the argument that the Justice Center is going to take into court because we're not. Uh, I think everybody knows, the Crown knows, we know, everybody knows that, you know, on a technical basis, uh, the person uh, in, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the person did violate the the health order that that was in place because they assembled with you know, more than five people or because of, uh, you know, whatever they insisted on holding the hand of a dying parent in a hospital or, you know, whatever uh, horrible thing it is that that the uh, the orders are, are making illegal or that they sang in church or, uh, you know, a church opened up when the BC government decided for it to close. We're typically not disputing the facts, uh, but we're raising the charter argument that it's the it's the health order or the, the the public health act it's the law itself that is on trial under the charter okay just to clarify though you're suggesting that people shouldn't make a charter argument on their own because i noticed you didn't really talk about that i was kind of waiting for you to say and at this point you say i object because my charter rights were violated so i didn't hear that in the first sequence where people were defending themselves i just i um 
was kind of waiting for that. I don't. I know you probably don't want to recommend people do any particular type of approach, but I suppose it's particularly complex, and uh, it would be difficult to run a charter case on your own for a ticket, for instance. I, I'm assuming that. Can you clarify? Yes. I mean, your assumption's correct. It's it's not, you know, if you've done hundreds of hours of, of reading on the lockdowns and, and the evidence and the COVID death rates, et cetera, et cetera, the problem is you have to prove all of that. Uh, you, you cannot take the stand as a citizen and say, well, I've looked at the government data and the government data tells us that uh, COVID-19 is not the unusually deadly killer that the politicians are making it out to be. And uh, I, as a layman, uh, want to challenge the assumption that the uh, PCR tests are generating uh, very high false positive rates and that they're not a sound basis for public policy. They're not a valid reason to take away our rights and freedoms. You can't put any of that in as evidence as a citizen. You need a uh, you would need medical experts and expert reports, et cetera, et cetera. So it, practically speaking, it's not really possible for the average citizen to raise that charter defense. And what I'm hopeful for is that because we've got uh, court actions filed now in Manitoba, Alberta, British Columbia, and Saskatchewan's coming up next, uh, I think very likely by January 31st uh, or sooner, and um, yeah, probably Ontario as well, but that might be a little bit further down the road, is that we can write to the Crown prosecutors and say, well, pending this uh, court action that's challenging the validity of the orders, uh, we request a stay of the charges. And so that's something that the staff lawyers are uh, are going to be discussing in terms of uh, helping out with the representation of the initial tickets. But at this point, it, what we are doing then is we ask for disclosure and we inform the Crown that we are planning to raise a charter argument. And then some of those cases are going to get bumped from, say, the uh, provincial court up to the level that's one higher, which would be the Ontario Superior Court of Justice or the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench or the BC Supreme Court. Uh, sometimes the charter cases get bumped from uh, provincial court into uh, one level up. But you do need to provide uh, advance notice that you are challenging the law itself. So you would or do the, that. the health order itself. So we would do. We're going to do that for all of the tickets that we uh, receive. I see. Okay, and you do that say after you get disclosure or whatever, or do you automatically let them know? How about lumping them all together? Is that an option as well? I don't suppose. Like in terms of, let's like say, all the tickets for Alberta, since you're going to be making the same argument for everybody, you can't really turn them into kind of like a class action defense. If there is we can ask, we can ask for simultaneous uh, trials. That's mm. certainly what uh, uh, in in some of my free speech defense work, I've had that happen where there okay. were eight people that were all issued tickets uh, on the same day at the same time. It was for a, a peaceful protest at an airport. And there's very clear Supreme Court of Canada authority saying that the uh, airport is a public venue where you can peacefully do things like hand out flyers. And uh, although I think there is a, a new case that's come along that might uh, cast that into doubt. But yes, what happened there was uh, all of my clients got tickets for the same peaceful protest, same date, same time, everything. And so those were all tried together, right? There's no reason to have separate trials. 
Okay. So there's so there's common facts. Uh, here with our ticket cases in each province, there might not be common facts, but there's common legal arguments because we're going after the root of this whole problem, which is which is the the media propaganda machine and and the uh, the, the the politicians rhetoric that we should all be living in fear all the time because COVID is an unusually deadly killer and that lockdowns are the best way to save lives. We're going after the fundamentals. Uh, we're not nibbling around the edges. We're not going after the leaves and branches. We're, we're going after the root in, uh, in all of our court actions because that's the only way to, uh, to, to, to kill this tree is you go after the roots. Uh, okay. You can, you can destroy some branches and, you know, strip off some leaves, but the the branches and leaves will just grow back. Uh, so the root problem is this uh, this notion that's not supported by the government data uh, that that COVID is an unusually deadly killer that we should all be afraid of, and that that lockdowns are good public policy, uh, that lockdowns are the best way to fight it, that lockdowns are producing more good than harm. These are the foundational ideas that are driving the problem. As the plaintiff or whatever the guy, if you go the charter challenge route, do you have to show up every day in court? Well, if a trial drags on for days and days, then, then yes. And some of our, some of these larger actions, uh, like our, our court actions against, uh, each of the four Western provinces, I anticipated that, that there'll be a week, Mm. uh, you know, five full days of trial scheduled because you're going to have the expert witnesses, Take the stand, so to so to speak. I anticipate it will all be done via Zoom, but you're going to have the uh, the expert witnesses uh, stand up. You know the the medical experts that are authoring these uh, reports. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I was I was wondering because you know I was thinking of the let's say a truck truck driver got a ticket and all of a sudden he's going charter challenge. He's got to take five days off. You know that might be you know, a little difficult for some people. I also wanted to ask you about, uh, say, an organization gets a ticket, because I know that uh, some churches have had tickets. Who represents, who has to sit in court there? Is it the head of the church, or can anybody, anyone from the congregation, who represents, who's got to sit in court and uh, deal with this? It would be the, the church, if a church got a ticket, and if the ticket said that, you know, the ticket's being issued to the church itself, then the church would appoint a legal representative to be the spokesman for the church, uh, for you know purposes of speaking and uh, being cross-examined, answering questions, so on and so forth. Uh, in some of the cases, they've just charged the uh, the pastors and elders, and they haven't charged the the church as such. But it's kind of the same deal. Uh, there's a request for disclosure. There is uh, informing the Crown that you're raising a charter challenge and trial data set and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thanks for clearing that up. I did want to segue over to the faith community because I know, as I said, some of the defendants that you are dealing with are churches, but I've also heard uh, that there are some dissenters as well, people in the faith community that are sort of objecting to any pushback from the faith community and they're adopting the government health measures full bore and actually going a little even beyond that, recommending uh, that others be punished for not following them. Do you want to get into that a little bit, John? Yeah, there's a city councillor, Blair Whitmarsh, in the city of Langley, British Columbia, which is roughly 
an hour's drive uh, east of Vancouver. It's in the Fraser Valley. And um, so he describes himself as a very strong born-again Christian believer. And the city of Langley wants to strip churches of their uh, municipal tax exemption if they're not complying with provincial health order. And uh, this uh, councillor, Blair Whitmarsh, was uh, interviewed by Carrie Simpson, and uh, who's with a, a group called Culture Guard in British Columbia. And uh, it's, it's interesting to read the transcripts. Um, so, so as background, uh, there's, there's BC health orders, which are being violated by some churches because they're opening up because in British Columbia, they are closing churches. They have closed churches entirely. And this, uh, while allowing restaurants to stay open and people can, um, uh, you can have six strangers from six different households can sit together at the same table in a restaurant, but churches must close entirely. So they're not even trying to limit it to 15% or trying to limit it to a certain number. Churches closed entirely, uh, but restaurants are open. So the Justice Center is acting for churches that are taking the government to court. So Carrie Simpson asks uh, Blair Whitmarsh, so you think people then going to the mall, that that's fine and dandy, but not going to church? You can sit shoulder to shoulder on an airplane. Uh, restaurants are open. And uh, the born-again Christian counselor says, well, you could find lots of holes if you'd like to. I'm not going to address those, but I'm just telling you about churches opening up. I think it's wrong. And Carrie Simpson says, but you want to penalize the churches that are disagreeing with you. And uh, Councillor Whitmarsh says, yes. And Carrie asks him, what if the court comes down with us and says that the orders were unreasonable and breached the church's rights? So in other words, you know, what if you remove tax status, uh, tax exemption status from churches. Uh, again, this is municipal government kind of acting, uh, you know, trying to be a cheerleader for the uh, for Dr. Bonnie Henry's provincial orders. Cheerleader is more like an enforcement officer. Enfor <laughs> enforcement officer, yeah. So. Yeah. And Councillor magnanimous, magnanimously says that if, if the church is winning court and the court declares the health orders to be unconstitutional, uh, then uh, we should have a conversation about possibly reconsidering. That conversation. Yeah. I hate that word now. <laughs> they all said, oh, we can have a conversation about that. No, no, you well, return the money. Shut up and return the money. <laughs> Sorry. But I anyway. guess that would be an avenue as well. Yeah, the, the, the taxes that have been paid can be refunded again. So Carrie says, well, why wouldn't you wait until the court made its decision? And counselor says, because it's going to take a long period of time and by then – the pandemic will be over. When's that going to happen? I don't know. Maybe September will be back to uh, close, close to normal. And then Carrie says, okay, so if they make vaccinations mandatory, would you be in support of everybody being forced to be vaccinated? And Councillor Whitmar says, I've no comment on that. I haven't thought about it. Carrie, I don't live my life on speculation. Now Ooh. that drives me nuts because all of the lockdown measures are based purely on speculation and nothing else. There's speculation that this novel experiment, which has never succeeded in human history, uh, nobody can point to a single example where locking down the healthy population or locking down the entire population has produced a good 
result or has succeeded in getting rid of a virus. So this is everything in the last 10 months is one big grand experiment. And the the lockdown supporters, they can scream the word science uh, till they're blue in the face. And they can scream the word evidence-based public policy till they're blue in the face. Uh, This isn't science. It's not evidence-based public policy. This is a big experiment that has never been tried in human history. And it's not very evidence-based when you consider the fact that governments are willfully blind to the lockdown harms. And we know that because our Justice Center researchers have spent hundreds of hours trying to uncover information about what what documents does the government have that show that the government's actually tracking the various harms, the uh, opioid deaths and the suicides and deaths from cancelled surgery and increasing cancer deaths and the consequences of delaying MRI scans and CT scans, uh, the rises in depression, anxiety, and stress, the mental health harms, uh, the impact on children from being deprived of physical activity and martial arts and swimming, uh, the, the clo- health impact, mental and physical, of closing gyms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Governments are not tracking any of this. So this is not evidence-based public policy, because if you love truth and if you care about the truth, you're going to be open-minded. And if you're open-minded, you're going to look at all the factors and all the issues. What the governments are doing is they are blindly following uh, a narrative that's been pre-established. And the narrative is that COVID is so deadly that it doesn't matter how much harm we inflict on people through lockdowns, it's all worth it because COVID is so deadly. And then they're deliberately not looking at the lockdown harms because they've already decided that no matter how bad it gets, it's all worth trying to stop COVID. Mm-hmm. But well, I, the evidence- I just, I just <laughs> want to say, you know, you attacked this counselor Whitmarsh for saying that he doesn't run his life by speculation. Well, that could be true. The point is he's trying to run your life by speculation. That's the difference, right? I mean, it's basically well, yes, but- he's applying the law. But laws laws should be based on something better than speculation. If this was, if uh, I, I think I think his point is that this is a valid law, and you know Christians even more than others because the the Christian scriptures expressly state Romans chapter thirteen that that everybody should obey the government authorities. Now, if you read the whole chapter, you will see that it's actually quite nuanced because the government authorities that Saint Paul is referring to are good government authorities because he refers in the same chapter to governments that punish wrongdoing. So context of obey the authorities is a context of a government that is, you know, good or at least not evil that is punishing, uh, you know, rape and murder and, and theft and assault and all kinds of crimes. That's the kind of government that you obey. It's not a blank slate for obeying uh, whatever law uh, Dina Hinshaw or Henry, Bonnie Henry or some other chief health officer uh, invented yesterday and is arbitrarily imposing. Obey the authorities doesn't apply to uh, curfew in Quebec where people can get a ticket for being outside after 8 p.m. When the premier of Quebec was questioned as to what impact is this curfew going to have on bringing down the rate of uh, of the so-called cases, uh, his answer was he didn't know. Yeah. So you got the government admitting that, yes, we're going to lock you, you know, it's, uh, we're going to treat you like little children. It's it's eight o'clock. It's time to get into your jammies and go to bed, or just, you're not allowed outside of the house after 8 p.m. 
But we don't know if that's actually going to be helpful or not, but we're doing it anyways. You know, this is the science. This is the evidence-based public policy of a police state, which is what we are now living in. These are not temporary measures. Uh, There are people like uh, Councillor Blair Whitmarsh who, you know, two years from now will still be urging obedience because, well, the government said it, so therefore we have to obey. But there's other scriptures that say that, um, uh, for example, uh, in the book of Acts, some uh, apostles were preaching the gospel. They were ordered to cease preaching the gospel. And they said, we will obey the laws of God, not of men. And they persisted in preaching the gospel, which was a clear violation of the uh, of the civil authorities. Another interesting example in the book of Exodus, the uh, Egyptians ordered that uh, every male Jewish baby that was born should be killed as soon as the baby was uh, outside of the mother. So kill every baby boy. And there were midwives that didn't comply with this uh, edict. And so the the Jews in Israel kept on having baby boys and they were not being killed according to the instructions of the civil authorities. And when the midwives were questioned about this, they told uh, Pharaoh a lie. And they said, they said, well, Jewish women are different from uh, Egyptian women. They give birth so quickly that the baby's born before we even get there. And so we're just not able to kill all these baby boys. <laughs> so they told a blatant lie to Pharaoh. Right. And then it says God approved of the midwives and rewarded them. So here you have a case of people disobeying the civil law and then lying about it. And then God says that, you know, he approves of the disobedience and the lie to the government. So it's it's kind of oversimplistic to look only at uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that says, obey the civil authorities. Uh, you have to uh, take a more nuanced and, and uh, comprehensive approach and balance that out and read it in its uh, proper context. Okay, fair enough. We'll cover <laughs> that in our next show, Scripture with John Carpe. But uh, let's get back to the legal stuff now. No, 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 no. one more thing, okay. one more thing. Councillor Blair Whitmar says, scriptures are quite clear that we try to obey the government. And I don't think it's a major hardship to not have to meet on a Sunday. And he goes on to explain that uh, that, that Zoom and Skype are just uh, perfectly wonderful alternatives. There's no need to meet in person. Well, if uh, Councillor Blair Whitmarsh is familiar with his scriptures, he will know that there's a command to meet in person. And uh, that's mentioned several times So it seems like he cares about the scriptures when they say obey government, but then when the scriptures say that Christians should meet in person, uh, suddenly he doesn't care what the scriptures say. And Carrie's follow-up question is brilliant. Well, uh, see, because Blair Whitmarsh is uh, is married and has kids, and uh, Carrie says, well, I think for you with family support, you know, that's a nice position to be in. But there's thousands of people that don't have that, Blair. That church is their family. That is their only contact with people. And you don't seem to be. And he says, well, that's true. So uh, that's good on his part. He does admit that, yeah, it's harder uh, if you're living alone, which uh, Statistics Canada, the, the trend in the last every decade, the number of Canadians that are living alone as a, a sole individual in a dwelling you know, has gone from, you know, what may have been 10% or some tiny fraction 50 years ago. It's growing, growing, growing. I don't know where it's at now, but, you know, 30, 40% of, uh, maybe not 30 or 40, but there's, there's a large number of Canadians that live alone. They do not live with a spouse, partner, roommate, kids, parents, whatever. There's a lot of people living alone. 
So uh, good on Councillor Blair Whitmarsh to, uh, to acknowledge that. He then goes on to assert, this is a once in a hundred year pandemic. This is a very serious pandemic. Well, now he's sounding like Jason Kenney, who, com- who has compared, publicly compared COVID-19 to the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920. And for those hearing the podcast for the first time, I'll mention it briefly. That, that was a pandemic that killed 20 to 100 million people around the world when the world's population was only 2 billion. And uh, right now we've got uh, COVID deaths at, you know, I don't know, 1.7, 1.8 million. But this is in a context of 55 million people that die every year. So the Spanish flu was literally uh, 50 to 100 times as lethal as what COVID is. So this is not a one in a hundred year pandemic. In fact, uh, Councillor Blair Whitmarsh has probably never heard of the Asian flu of 1957, which was far more lethal than COVID, or the uh, Hong Kong flu of 1968, which was also far more lethal than COVID. So uh, he's ill-informed. Well, except uh, this, this, is not- this is the once in a lifetime lockdown, though. I mean, the reaction. It's, it's the first time in human history yeah, so. that governments have locked down entire populations for, uh, in full or in part, there have been some fluctuations in the last 10 months. Mm. But uh, we've not been locked down free at any time in the last 10 months. And so this is a not just the first in a century, first time in human history that governments have locked down an entire healthy population. So he's ill-informed. This is not a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. Absolutely not. Well, we shouldn't just pick on this guy. There were other uh, faith groups that were speaking up actually in support of the lockdown measures uh, that were kind of countering the ones that had approached you who uh, were attempting to challenge them. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that. There's a letter on the internet from a Reverend Eric Parker of Sherwood Park Lutheran Church in Winnipeg, and he writes to publicly rebuke a uh, Pastor Leon and members of Springs Church. And so he says, we are writing to you as clergy, also serving faith communities in Manitoba and beyond, and uh, says, we find that your actions during the past days of encouraging Christians to disobey public health orders in the name of freedom are not an example of following Christ. We find that your insistence on the right to worship is not keeping with Christ's command to love our neighbor. We find that your actions disregard the dangers of COVID-19 in our community and that they only serve to create potential harm for our healthcare system and healthcare workers already pushed beyond capacity. Pastor Eric Parker goes on to ask that uh, Pastor Leon and the members of Spring Church take the following actions, that you repent of your actions and publicly apologize for putting your individual right to worship ahead of the good of our community, that you cease all legal action against the province and redirect those funds intended for legal costs towards a charity that truly helps Manitobans, such as Harvest Manitoba. And then he closes with a quote from Martin Luther written in 1527 about how Christians ought to respond to the Black Death, also known as the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, which killed a third of Europe. I say that anecdotally. I haven't brushed up on the history recently. Maybe it was a quarter, maybe it was more than a third, but it was it was massively deadly, unlike COVID-19, which uh, I won't repeat what I've said on that. 
<clears throat> so here, this is interesting. The quote from uh, Martin Luther about the Black Death from the year 1527. I shall avoid persons and places where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. Now, I think that's a very appropriate thing for Martin Luther, or just for any other person, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, to, uh, in the context of the Black Death, where something is, is highly contagious, and it's killing a third of the population, including uh, children, young adults, middle-aged adults, elderly people, this is destroying a, a third of Europe's population or some other large percentage, right? As opposed to COVID-19, uh, sur survival rate amongst those infected is 99.77%. Um, I saw a meme on the internet. How will we know if the uh, if the vaccine is effective, well, maybe the survival rate will increase from 99.77% to 99.78%. I mean, um, even amongst people over 70, the survival rate amongst infected people is a 95% in, uh, survival rate, which again means if, if you are elderly and you're sick with conditions like uh, cancer, emphysema, lung disease, heart disease, uh, kidney disease, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, then yes, you've got a, a high risk of death, which is why uh, the Great Barrington Declaration uh, says we should focus on protecting the vulnerable, which is something that our current crop of chief medical officers and politicians have done an abysmal job of uh, they have failed utterly to uh, to protect the vulnerable, and we've got the high death rates. But back to uh, back to Martin Luther in 1527. So it's highly th this comment would be highly appropriate even uh, today in 2021 if we were dealing with the bubonic plague or the Ebola virus or something like that. Then yes, uh, absolutely. The big problem with this is that asymptomatic people are not spreaders of the disease. So uh, if you do not have symptoms, uh, your chance of spreading it to somebody else is very, very low. So whether you're at a church or at a shopping mall or anywhere else, or you know, driving in a car with somebody who's not a family member, asymptomatic people are not spreaders, which undermines the whole foundation of the lockdowns. Now, he says uh, the action churches that are staying open are not keeping Christ's command to love our neighbor. This is without any thought or analysis as to whether lockdowns are producing more good than harm or more harm than good. There's no thought given to that, at least not expressed in this letter. This pastor is simply parroting what the chief medical officer has said in his daily fear-mongering news conferences with meaningless numbers of cases based on PCR tests that have false positive rates as high as 90%. And uh, the good pastor is just not, uh, you know, does he know about the PCR tests? Does he know that they have a false positive uh, rate? Does he know that they're not a reliable tool for um, saying whether somebody is infectious or not? Um, well, I would venture if he does to know say that, no, because based on my experience <laughs> of other people, they just, uh, you know, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, when we had to go through it here in this household, and I started asking people, 
in the health uh, community uh, about the PCR test, none of them knew anything about the test. They didn't even know what, what it was called. And so I, I couldn't get past that barrier to ask them about the uh, cycles because they had no clue of it at all. Anyways. So this uh, pastor, Reverend Eric Parker, goes on to say that uh, – the actions of open churches uh, disregard the dangers of COVID-19. Well, he's just making an assumption uh, that has been fed to him by the uh, media and by the politicians that COVID-19 is an unusually deadly killer. He drank the Kool-Aid, he's bought into that, and now he just assumes that to be the truth and then moves on right, yeah. <laughs> on this unfounded assumption to say that if, you, uh, if you're disregarding the dangers of COVID-19, then you're failing Christ's command to love our neighbor. Uh, he's also presupposing that asymptomatic people are spreaders of a dangerous virus. So that's two mistaken beliefs wrapped up in there. As for the repentance, well, if if ignoring facts and not doing research are sins, then I think it's uh, Eric Parker that needs to repent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we seem to have strayed a little bit from the legal side of things here, John. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, this doesn't stray from the... I mean, this is a, this, this is a broad uh, uh, political problem because people are misinformed. Uh, they're not looking at the facts. They're not thinking, and they're buying into the daily hype. And I don't, I don't really fault people necessarily. Uh, the people, I, I'm, I'm in a unique position where it's part of my job description to get myself informed and educated on these matters. I've had a lot of uh, discussions with doctors who, um, by by email and by telephone, uh, including doctors that are uh, that don't share my views. And um, so I'm, I'm in a privileged position where I, I can and I do carve out time to read these things that are, you know, at your fingertips. I don't fault the average citizen, you know, who is working 40 or more hours a week. And a lot of families, mom and dad are both working 40 hours a week and trying to juggle everything. And you've got childcare and kids going to school and you've got your budget. And if you have a little bit of extra time, you might spend it justifiably on recreation and entertainment. And people don't have the the time or perhaps they lack the confidence to question the the media narrative. And so people accept this and swallow this. And I have heard uh, one of my colleagues told me today, some poll that he had read that the support for the lockdowns is still up at 88%. And that includes people who want more stringent lockdowns uh, and those who are happy with the ones that we have now is is 88%. I hope the poll is wrong, uh, but eventually the facts are going to sink in and eventually people are going to maybe start to think a little bit more about the lockdown harms, even though governments and media do not want people to think about lockdown harms. Okay, fair enough. So why are you criticizing this pastor? Because he's throwing thunderbolts down on Because people? he's in a leadership position and he has the wherewithal uh, to, uh, to to read up on the facts. And I, I understand pastors are busy people and they have a lot on their plate, but uh, a pastor is a leader and a pastor should read, should look at the evidence, should look at the data, should think, and shouldn't just parrot what uh, whatever the chief medical officer is saying in a fear-mongering 
news conference uh, based on the inaccurate assumption that asymptomatic people can spread COVID and based on the inaccurate assumption that COVID-19 is an unusually deadly killer. Uh, to not read up on this stuff uh, for anybody in a leadership position uh, is disgraceful. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Are the burdens of the lockdowns shared equally? A lot of people have pointed out that the churches seem targeted. You had mentioned in Carrie Simpson's remarks that, uh, you know, people can sit side by side on an airline, uh, yet they, they can't do so at church. Well, no, the lockdowns are not being equitably distributed in at least uh, three ways that I can think of. First of all, in British Columbia, you have shopping malls and restaurants open, churches closed. There's no science uh, behind there. Uh, if, if it's about social distancing or whatever, uh, you don't keep restaurants open and, and uh, churches closed. Gyms in British Columbia are also open and the churches are being told that even if the people are socially distancing and wearing masks, there needs to be a complete shutdown of churches in British Columbia. So that is not equitable distribution. Another way it's not equitable is the public sector versus private sector. If you are a teacher, social worker, policeman, firefighter, provincial government employee, federal government employee, municipal government employee, you're getting your full paycheck in uh, you know 99% of the cases. There have been a few minor layoffs, uh, but nothing compared to people whose livelihoods are destroyed, businesses per- permanently destroyed, uh, people working in uh, tourism and the airlines industry and recreation and entertainment and convention centers and conferences and restaurants are being crippled and destroyed by lockdowns, not by COVID. COVID's not harming any of those things. It's purely the lockdowns. So there's no equitable distribution there when the public sector workers get uh, get their full paycheck with very few layoffs. And the uh, private sector people are forced to live on $2,000 a month, which sadly, uh, for some people, they don't even need that. Uh, they're younger people. So in some cases, they were earning less than $2,000 a month uh, before lockdowns. So now they're pocketing this money that they don't really need. And conversely, if you are uh, the breadwinner for a family and you've got a spouse and kids depending on you, then $2,000 a month is just going to pay uh, a fraction of what you actually need to live on. So these $2,000 payments are uh, too much or too little for most of the recipients. And the other inequitable distribution is the difference between those who can work online. They can work from home. They can work from a computer and those who cannot. So accountants and lawyers, uh, from what I've heard, are not massively uh, impacted as just two examples, whereas the hotel cleaning staff, a lot of them uh, immigrants, women, uh, they don't have education and training, they're lower income, and now they're thrown out of work. So there's no equitable distribution of these lockdown harms. All right. Well, thanks a lot, John. That brings us to the end of season two, episode two. Note that uh, season two, episode two of Justice with John Carpe. Thanks a lot, John. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Talk to you next week, Kevin. Kevin.